0: Dime un numero y una letra, va un número. Numero
1: trece. Eh,
0: Trece.
1: This is Snails and Oysters. And welcome back to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bisexual movie podcast. I'm Nat Roberts.
0: And I'm Allie Rogers.
1: How are you doing today, Allie?
0: I'm doing okay. I just got my teeth cleaned and the woman who took my uh, dental x-rays was really lovely and really funny and had very queer energy.
1: Oh, Nice. You always know you're in good hands when you 're with a member of the community,
0: <laughs> yeah, I just felt very, I felt very relaxed, <laughs> but otherwise, today, I feel like the vibes are off. We're recording this intro on the harvest moon, <laughs> and a lot of people I spoke to today agree that the vibes are off
1: i didn't even know what cycle of the moon we were in, and I felt that the vibes were off so that that I guess that proves that astrology is real guys um. I'm good, though. I I'm good. I had two hours to kill this afternoon. So I watched that new Netflix movie, Kate, with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, it was good. It it wasn't like remarkably good, but it, it was better than it needed to be to be an enjoyable action movie, if that makes sense.
0: Totally. Totally.
1: Plus, I'm a sucker for any movie where Mary Elizabeth Winstead kills people. <laughs> I wish she would kill me. God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you sound like the teens on Twitter and <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, speaking of when we're recording this, we're recording this on Monday. And yesterday, Sunday, marked uh, the celebration of Pride for many Eastern European countries. There were Pride demonstrations in Ukraine, uh, in the capital of Kiev, and in Serbia, in Belgrade. So just wanted to give a sort of international solidarity shout out to our queer brothers and sisters overseas.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah shout out solidarity <laughs> i'm very i think i'm really awkward at solidarity
1: <laughs> got got to go to more socialist meetings
0: just got to go to more social events period
1: <laughs> true Oh, God, it's true. <laughs> Last night, I went to a picket line just so that I could get out of the house.
0: <laughs> nice. What were you picketing?
1: Uh, it's this restaurant here in L.A. called the Chateau Mormont.
0: Oh, yes. This is like a famous place.
1: Yeah, it's very famous. Uh, and that's why one of DSA's subcommittees is uh, specializes in Hollywood labor. And so we've been protesting and picketing alongside them in solidarity because a lot of movie people frequent this hotel that has been... Just treating their workers like crap, I would encourage everyone to Google hashtag uh, boycott Chateau Marmont to learn some of the gruesome details. Hell yeah. Speaking of international solidarity, this week's movie <laughs> is Itumama Tambien from Mexico, directed by Alfonso Cuaron.
0: Uh, yeah, what a transition.
1: <laughs> I thought it was pretty slick.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty slick. I so loved watching this movie for the first time. Can't wait to watch it again. I'm hoping to catch it on a big screen somewhere hopefully it'll get, you know. I feel like lots of movie theaters in New York do classic re-screenings. Totally.
1: Yeah. I I love this movie as well. I can't wait to start talking about it. So, let's let's get right to it.
0: So, It's Mama Tambien is a 2001 film about the friendship between two teenage boys, Julio who comes from a more working-class background, and Tanook, who comes from a more upper-class background. And the movie kind of kicks off with both of their girlfriends heading to Italy for the summer, and the two of them trying to figure out
1: what to do. At first, the two sort of waste their days uh, just sort of hanging out, uh, jerking off into a pool together, killing time, you know, typical teenage boy stuff.
0: Boy stuff, yeah.
1: The inciting incident of the movie is when they attend one of, Tanuk's cousin's weddings, where one of the other guests is this older woman, Luisa, who's actually married to another one of Tanuk's cousins.
0: So when they're trying to flirt with Luisa, they try to get her to go on this trip with them to a beach called Boca del Cielo, which in Spanish translates to heaven's mouth.
1: They're, they're very like full of bravado and are very pushy with her at the wedding. And she just sort of placates them and like shoes them along.
0: Then... They're totally surprised the next day when they get a call from her saying, oh, you know, I want to go with you to that beach.
1: Because what they don't know is that we see Louisa have just the worst day ever where she gets clearly some sort of bad news from a doctor only to call her husband who's out of town to have him pick up the phone and he's drunk and he admits he just had an affair with someone. And that is sort of what spurs Louisa to to call the, the two boys.
0: And... What she doesn't know is that they made up this beach. There is no such beach. But they're so excited about the idea of hanging out with this older babe that they just decide to pack up and just head somewhere.
1: And that's pretty much the movie. Most of what we've described takes about 10, 20 minutes to set up. And then the rest of the film is the three of them in a car driving through Mexico in the summer. There's sort of these vignettes along the road where they stop for lunch or they pass some sort of memorial on the highway. But the bulk of the film is just them in the car talking.
0: Over the course of their road trip, Luisa ends up having sex with Snook and then having sex with Julio and then... By the end of the film, all three of them have sex together in a very drunken threesome.
1: And it's during that threesome that sort of this this barrier between Julio and Tanuk breaks down and the two of them end up kissing each other as well. It's not just that they're in bed with Louisa, they're in bed with each other in that scene.
0: And that's pretty much the movie, but it's an incredible film. It's uh, really amazing and psyched to talk about it. We've had uh ups and downs cinema-wise in this podcast. Indeed, we have. And watching this movie felt like a breath of fresh air into my life. It felt like this is besides seeing my friend Nat and making a podcast, this is why I want to keep doing this podcast. It's just forcing myself to watch good movies. And I had a very weird day today where, you know, trigger warning roaches. I went to war with roaches in my apartment this morning. So I like was just like, you know, doing the things in life that don't necessarily make you feel alive, but are like mandatory. And it was really nice to sit down and watch a movie that I felt like was really full of life and also full of surprise and also a really good example of why the MPAA ratings in the US are destroying cinema where they're not destroying... The cinema of other countries. Yeah, I I know that. I think you were supposed to do research on this one, but I couldn't help myself, and I did do a little bit of reading into it. I'll be
1: honest. I thought you were doing research anyway, so I've I've done nothing.
0: Okay, perfect, perfect. <laughs> I love that.
1: Wow, that's that's we dodged a bullet there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's so funny. We might it might have been my job. All I, do,
1: I don't think we talked about it honestly. So
0: let me go off a little more. No,
1: please continue. Not
0: too long, but I'll say. I loved how much the cinematography made it feel like a documentary because I'm actually also a big documentary nerd. And I loved the strength of the primary friendship shown in the film. I loved the way that kind of this particular version of a kind of like crass, jokey male friendship was portrayed with such honesty and without any judgment. I loved... The woman, although I was like, what are we doing? What kind of eat, pray, love is this? Eat, pray something. (laughs) Eat, pray something. Yeah. And wow, I just have so, I'm just so excited to talk about it. I'm worried that we're going to talk for like a really long time and make another Spartacus for you. So I'll try to like, (laughs) I'll try to rein it in, but I'm just really, really happy I saw this film. Actually, this is the closest I've watched the film and we've done the recording I literally finished watching it like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> so it's really fresh in my mind. I took a lot of notes.
1: I, I watched it just yesterday. Uh, now, this was your first time watching it too, right? I assume? Yeah. 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 This was also my first time. It has been on my list for years. Same. So I fully, fully relate to what you were saying about like, this is, this is why we do this podcast to get like, f- get off our asses and get on our asses to watch a good movie.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> cause you can really keep a list of films that you know you should watch. That can really mm. go on for, like, years and years and years. Years and years and years and years and years
1: and years and years. And years, and years, and years. <laughs> yeah, and this is, like,
0: forcing us at least to, to move some of those into the have watched
1: category. Exactly. And this is a perfect example of it. Because this movie, it, it I had I read the synopsis of it because I can't help but ruin my own life by (laughs) reading the wikipedia article of every movie i want to see but the experience of watching it is so much richer than any synopsis could give you and i think a lot of that comes down obviously to the performances the three leads are all incredible actors and the cinematography i just loved it it's so (sighs) It, it it feels so rooted. Yeah. Like we talked about before in the Scott Pilgrim episode, this movie has a fantastic sense of place that permeates every scene, every moment. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is like this undercurrent of political consciousness in the movie that I was not expecting at all, but really loved because I feel like political consciousness has been so important to our generation that it almost feels insane to divorce it from the experience of youth um and so that constant awareness of class of politics of globalization and imperialism and you know the the political strife in Mexico at the time that this movie is set uh it's it's just fantastic yeah
0: <laughs> it's funny though uh, as much as it's about that awareness i also feel it like it's about how much world events intersect with your own personal life, Mm. how, you know, in the midst of even the most intense political strife, people are still just people trying to live life to the fullest or not even live life to the fullest, but just they're just doing day to day things, having silly conversations with their friends in cars, hitting on older women, like getting some ass or not. (laughs) <laughs> and and I As love the case that. may be. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I fully agree. And I feel like this movie has this wonderful sense of sex as uh as like the most pure expression of life force and vitality. Yeah. I feel like that shows up in so many scenes, this idea, this conception of sex as the ultimate example of living. You know, it's, which is, uh, you know, ironic because in French, of course, an orgasm is le petit mort, uh, the little death. Bam! Yes,
0: <laughs> oh, oh, that brought some French into it. Ay! <laughs> a- <laughs> um. Duolingo
1: hasn't taught me Spanish yet, so I have to use my other romance language. Has
0: Duolingo actually taught you, uh, le petit mort?
1: No, unfortunately not. The, the little green owl friend did not teach me le petit mort. I just know that because I'm a horny bastard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, I would love to quote for, to you because um, I Please. also loved the sex scenes. Uh, I mean, they were a little startling at first. And, and I think Absolutely. they're startling in particular to my very American eyes because they're extremely realistic. Yes. In a way that is both, uh, you feel, I think, a little shy as a viewer, and you also feel like they're realistic in a way that it's like, oh, right, sex is this beautiful thing that's like all you know about vitality and life force, and also it's goofy, it's weird, it's awkward. Like there's a clumsiness to it uh that is really captured beautifully on film.
1: Especially given the youth of the two leads, it, it's interesting because it's one of the few movies to capture how sex feels mm. to me. Like mm-hmm. in in our "Some Like It Hot" episode, we talked about how just showing graphic sex is not necessarily going to capture the feeling of having sex. And I feel like this movie does a really good job of balancing its explicitness with emotional honesty, if that makes sense. Like, it it feels very goofy and awkward and desperate and hungry. Yeah. Um, Which is how you you feel when you're young. Yeah. And embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Yeah, I mean, you're showing your bathroom area.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and I read another review that – I can't remember whose it was, but they said that the kinetic energy of the camera Mm. in the sex scenes and throughout the whole film really added to that, which I think is true. I wanted to quote from the Roger Ebert review, um, and he said, The movie is realistic about sex, which is to say, franker and healthier than the smutty evasions forced on American movies by the R rating. Yes. We feel a shock of recognition. This is what real people do and how they do it, sexually. And the MPAA has perverted a generation of American movies into puerile, masturbatory snickering.
1: Wow, that Uh, pretty much captures exactly it, doesn't it? it
0: really does. It really does. Wow.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's what's crazy is how... You know American audiences are denied accurate depictions of healthy sex like it it's the closest you get is a fade out as the characters sink out of frame, and it's ridiculous,
0: yeah, and not even healthy sex, but just like average sex or any other just kind of sex, sex. <laughs> is it like bizarrely candle lit and bizarrely shot
1: or or frankly intercut with scenes of violence like in American media. You know, it's, it's, there's so much conflation and interplay of sex and violence. It's completely ridiculous. It's, it's disturbed. It is
0: disturbed. Yeah. (laughs) The
1: only American movie that I could really think to compare to *Itu Mama Tambien would be Conversations with Other Women, Mm -hmm. which was made in 2005 uh, and starred Erin Eckhart and Helena Bottom Carter, directed by Hans Kenosa. Uh, it's fantastic and wildly underappreciated, mm. but the the interesting thing there is that that movie is shot entirely in split screens, which I know sounds offputting, but there's this beautiful sex scene in the middle uh, that still has this split screen effect. But it's it's these very honest, open shots of two middle aged people or almost middle aged people having sex, and it's funny and awkward and a little sad, but also very sexy and sensual. Mm. And it's also shot on digital, which I believe Mama* was, which gives it like a very gritty documentary feel.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that. Really quickly, I did find the quote about the kinetic feel, which I do want to credit. Please. His name's Andy Herrera, and he actually specifically wrote about bisexuality in Itumama Tambien. He has this really great line where he says, The camera work during the sex scenes often feels as lively as the people having sex on screen as it moves in and out and creates a kinetic feel to every sex scene. So I thought that was true. I, and honestly, the reason I actually found it, I think, a little jarring at first is I think most of the time you only see that kind of uh, kinetic camera work with, with that kind of depiction of sex in porn, actually. Yeah. Um, and Which, which why, well, was why I found it like jarring. I don't know if that was as true in 2001 as it's true today 20 years later. But um,
1: If anything, I can only imagine it was more jarring back then.
0: Yeah. But it was really nice to see that in a context that was not porn. Not that I watch porn or have ever seen porn. This is all just what oh, I've
1: course. heard
0: down the... I've never... I don't know what it is or where you find it. Um. Anyways, moving yeah. on. What else? God, yeah, I just remembered <laughs> both
1: our mothers listen to this podcast. Actually,
0: my mother does not listen to this podcast. She, oh. uh, she hasn't fully, you know... She's fully a boomer and she's still like learning about what a podcast is.
1: Oh, Lord. I I was worried for a sec you were going to say she's fully a boomer and still doesn't understand bisexuality.
0: (laughs) No, no. I think she mostly understands it, although, you know, working on it.
1: Um. <laughs> well, let's, let's dive right into the bisexuality since it came up in the review that you were reading. Cool. I, and, and for once, let's get to the bisexuality oh, really? in the first half of the podcast yeah. instead of the, the second half. Obviously, we both knew that this movie had bisexuality in it, which is why we are here and have watched it. Uh, how do you, how do you, how would you describe the way the movie handles bisexuality? How it inter, like, works it in?
0: I think I do, I can see it through, like, a bisexual lens, but I could also see it, and, and some of the reading I did saw it through another, like, different lenses. Um, I think it just, it's so much a movie about the intense intimacy and friendship between these two young men, Tanuk and Julio. Like, they're so close in a, in a way that crosses a lot of boundaries, some that are silly, like when they're kind of farting and making the other one smell each other's farts in the car. And some that are just a little shocking, like when they're both jerking off on different diving boards at this empty pool club. Um, so you just get this sense of two Boys who, and I think even they're described once as like a fused nucleus or as a nucleus, the two, the pair mm. of them, by the narrator. It's really just a movie about their intense, intense relationship with each other. And uh, Louisa, the woman in the movie, who's about ten years older than them, Louisa is the one who really calls it out yeah. because when they get they get into this big fight together. Where, um, because they both have revealed to each other that they fucked the other one's girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. besides being generally a shitty thing to do to fuck your best friend's girlfriend, it also happens to be specifically against their uh, 11-part their, their manifesto. manifesto. yeah. <laughs> the Chololastro manifesto. Um, Which,
1: love Chololastro, like... Oh, it's such a good I'm space like, cowboy. I'm
0: so pro manifestos. I'm so pro manifestos in movies. <laughs> I like was like, I need a manifesto for my own life when I heard it selfishly. I was like, I'm just pro making up rules to live by, especially if you're doing it with your friends.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, so we should have a manifesto for this podcast. Okay, we should think about that. <laughs> but she says... What did she say? I'm pretty sure I wrote it down.
1: I remember this moment very specifically because she she basically says, like, you're ridiculous. You just want to fuck each other.
0: Yes. Yes. She says, you just want to fuck each other. And she's basically leaving leaving them, being like, I'm out of here. I'm not even driving with you guys anymore. Takes her shit. Yeah.
1: I'm sick of being in the middle
0: of this. Yeah. And it's all part of this, like, you just – you're like all other men. And Mm. I read another review that gave me a little more insight into this scene where, like – for Louisa, her journey in the film, she's been betrayed by her husband.
1: Many, many times.
0: Many times. And she feels lost. And what she sees in these two young men, especially in hearing their manifesto, she thinks she's kind of almost found a better way to live with these like youthful men who are kind of so boastful and open about their sexuality. And then when they get into this ugly fight about fucking each other's girlfriends, she feels like, oh my God, they're just like every other guy.
1: Their principles meant nothing.
0: Exactly. Their principles meant nothing. And at the end of the day, they think women are just kind of like-
1: Come catchers.
0: Come catchers. Yeah. she uses. I think she says, you just use women to mark your territory when you really just want to fuck each other or something like that. So she's the one who really like verbalizes it, and then when she ends up getting back in the car, she makes her own manifesto, and that's her agreeing to get back in the car and continue going to the beach with them. And part of her own manifesto is that, I will not fuck you, this is actually the first one, but you can fuck each other. Yeah. So she repeats it again.
1: And and I feel like that manifesto scene is really like almost a ceasefire agreement where it's like you're going to stop fighting for a bit and just work together again to get, to get us to the fucking beach.
0: Yeah. Literally get us to the fucking beach.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: um, yeah. Ayo. The
0: one other moment that feels a little more just subtly hinting out at the feelings they might have for each other is when... Julio walks in on Tanook and Louisa having sex, and he, the narrator says, he'd only had this feeling once before when he'd walked in on, I think, his mom and his godfather having sex, and he never spoke about it again. And we don't get a lot more insight into that moment, but he visually clearly looks really depressed and confused and isolated. And he definitely sounds like he feels betrayed.
1: Yeah, betrayal is exactly the word I, I pictured with that scene where it's almost like. He thought there was this sacred bond, uh, this almost like chaste thing of, well, we both want to sleep with her, but, you know, we're fuckheads. We're not going to like actually.
0: That's what's so fun about this movie is this movie kind of takes what on its face is just a kind of stupid teenage fantasy. And it kind mm. of follows it through to, yeah, so what if? What if that did happen? What if you got exactly what you think you wanted? This whole movie is kind of about Louisa calling their bluff.
1: Yeah, she, every time that they, like, you know, their, their first invitation to uh, the uh, Heaven's Mouth is a complete, you know, yes. lie. Like, yeah. they're, they're not going anywhere. They don't know a beach called Heaven's Mouth. They don't know anything. It's, it's just to impress her at a party. And then she says, okay, let's go. And they like scramble to figure it out. And then she's like, uh, she calls her bluff again, where it's like, Oh, you want to sleep with me? Yeah. Yeah, let's fuck. Yeah. Both of you. Let's go. Louisa sleeps with Tannook first and then sleeps with Julio the next day to like even the score, basically, because <laughs> she feels like she's caused an imbalance. Yeah. And uh when like Tanuk like storms away as she's having sex with Julio, she finds him later and says, Wasn't this the plan to like go on this road trip with me and fuck me? Like this this is what this was all about, right? Yeah. And yet he also has that sense of betrayal, that sense of, like, confusion. Yeah.
0: And I think what's interesting is I definitely read that betrayal as queer. Yes. Um, but I also think you can read it both ways where I think both boys feel a little betrayed and they feel like their own relationship has been somehow betrayed or violated, but they yeah. also seem to feel betrayed because they feel like the other one has achieved what's supposed to be just a fantasy between the two, the two of them and I feel like that's really illustrated because they're both when they're jerking off on the diving boards they both come to the thought of her yeah so it was supposed to be what was just a shared homoerotic fantasy and when it becomes real there's a sense of betrayal there because they could share it as long as it was fantasy
1: right where as soon as they actually do it they do it alone they you know it's just one of them and Louisa at a time, which is what makes the, the like climactic pun intended (laughs) sex scene. So perfect because finally it's them together the way that they've always kind of wanted to be Yes, where, yes, they are having this shared sexual experience with Louisa, but they're able to do it together and to like break down the final barrier of their desire for each other.
0: And that was a really beautiful scene. Yeah. Um, just in the way that Louisa goes to, uh, a little bit do a little bit of double trouble a bit of blow job <laughs> blow, to blow them both um and yes the camera pans up from her and just focuses on this kiss between the two of them and i just thought it was so beautifully done because for a moment you just think that their heads are going to touch me yeah there's just such a lingering in the moment of what if is this really going to happen are they really going to kiss and then is this kiss really going to be kind of gentle and romantic. And it really was. It really I mean, it is. It was, like, really beautiful. It
1: reminded me of um, a line from Madeline Miller's novel, Circe. Uh, the context isn't important. It's just right before a kiss, uh, the narrator says, I reached across the breathing air between us and found him.
0: That really is beautiful. Yeah,
1: yeah. Wow. And I feel like that very accurately describes this tense breath that you can almost feel on your face right yeah. before the two of them kiss.
0: Something I think that it's interesting to note that I found in my research, and I definitely think this is part of what, maybe this is really the heart of the film's success, but these two actors were actually childhood friends.
1: Gail Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna, who of course had both gone on to have phenomenal success uh, as as actors. Um, yeah, I, I read that too somewhere, that I, I think the director, Alfonso Caron, was actually hesitant to cast Diego Luna, but Bernal... Uh, convinced him by say, like, pointing to their real world friendship.
0: This really puts the, the romance in bromance, this whole film, I think. Well, and I think that
1: that actually speaks a lot to at least my experience as a bisexual man. Before I was able to articulate to myself that I was bi, I remember as a kid having male friends who I just wanted more from. And that was how I thought about it. I couldn't put my finger on it it wasn't even a closeness factor like this wasn't usually like one of my closer friends it would be someone I knew from karate class or from boy scouts shout out to uh, all of my fellow ex-boy scout (laughs) current queers but yeah just a sense of wanting more from them more than they could give me and not really knowing what it was uh, and not associating it with the the feelings that I had for for girls that I knew who I had crushes on. Like I was able to articulate those as crushes, but looking back, I can very clearly see like, oh no, I had a crush on him. And so I think that that feeling permeates this movie uh, very well, especially Julio and Tanuk's relationship, where it's this sense that they just want something from the other that they can't give until they do.
0: Yeah. Wow. what This movie does an interesting job of showing of how compulsive heterosexuality, which is talked a lot about for women. Most of the time when I hear a conversation about compulsive heterosexuality, it's in terms of, of women who are queer. But I think this movie does a really good job of showing how it operates for men who are queer as well, because it shows how well homoeroticism can be just underneath the surface of what seems like You know, of what seems like almost the most aggressive form of uh, heterosexuality that can possibly be. And what this review said was just that, like, you know, they're able to treat the women in their life as just disposable, where, like, their real bond, the real meaningful relationship they have is with each other. And yet they kind of never cross over that line until, like you said, they do cross over that line. But when they do... It's too much, yeah, or it it cha- it changes something because, or they're
1: not able to understand it, right? You know, and I, again, I think that that's part of the poverty of compulsory heterosexuality is that it leaves people unable to understand their own internal experience, yeah. because it they don't have the tools, they don't have the language, they don't have the architecture. You know, I think I obviously we all you know have mixed feelings about the amount of labels that we use in our world, but when it comes to sexuality and such vague internal feelings, a label can actually be incredibly helpful, or at least here knowing the terms of somebody else's experience can help you define your own. And I think that under really compulsorily heterosexual
0: expectations. Yes,
1: exactly. In, in deep, deep, deeply seated heterosexual, uh, heterosexist environments, uh, it's just ignorance. It's just an ignorance of the other options more than it is a, a dis, like a feeling, any feeling of hatred for them.
0: I think people, including a lot of queer people who I know can feel a little overwhelmed or maybe exhausted by the proliferation of what feels like endless labels. But I think you make a really great point when the option is maybe an imperfect world of labels. Versus nothing versus a void in which you just cannot understand yourself. Obviously, the better option is to have labels to sift through and to, to play with, to try on. I don't, you know, I don't have, I don't say try on lightly as in like, I say, like, I think a lot of people use different labels as they evolve their feelings and clarify their own, uh, orientation, but
1: exactly. And until we achieve a complete liberation of desire. I think that labels yes, yes. are valuable weapons against the cis patriarchy.
0: It's interesting because, basically, after their kiss, they wake up in bed at the same time. I think—which one of them throws up?
1: I believe it's Tanuk.
0: Tanuk immediately goes outside and throws up. Which, they had been drinking a lot the night before, but you definitely get the sense that it's a mix of drinking and a mix of, like— Horror and shock.
1: Right. I wanted to talk about this scene and unpack it because I knew, obviously, I knew that it happened because I I obsessively read plot synopses for movies I haven't seen. Uh, and I, I was very worried when I read it because I was worried it was going to be a very Ace Ventura, oh God, oh God, oh God moment. But instead... I think the context of the sheer amount that they had been drinking the night before really puts it into perspective as partly a hangover. And it's a very like downplayed realistic moment, as opposed to a played up dramatic, like, Oh God, what have I done? And it said, it's, it's more like a crashing down to reality. Like, Oh yeah.
0: Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think you can read it as being a mix of both. And I think there's a, lo- you could probably do like talk for 45 minutes, even just about kind of the significance of that amount of drinking before they kiss, you know, Mm. because... I do think there was a degree of like...
1: Disinhibition?
0: Disinhibition. Yeah, I do think there was a degree of like, we need to be a certain amount inebriated to go to this place where we want to go, which I don't think that's particularly uncommon for that to happen, but I don't...
1: I wouldn't call it healthy.
0: (laughs) I I was just about to say there's a sadness to that.
1: Yeah, it is. There's a
0: sadness, and and I think that plays into the denial that... Follows it. ...where they... They leave Louisa because she wants to stay at the beach. And they go home and then they don't talk for a year.
1: And then they stop talking altogether.
0: Yeah, they talk one last time.
1: This this is a thought that hadn't occurred to me before, but I wonder if the, the idea of Louisa staying at the beach isn't just a plot point, but a, a symbolic element. Yeah. Uh, I remember in her final conversation with her Husband, before she she cuts off all contact with him, she says something like, "I hope you can figure out how to be happy one day." I have, uh, and she she very much loves Mexico. She she's from Spain, but loves being in Mexico. She calls it this this place of life and vitality. And she chooses she, after this this wonderful trip is over, she decides to spend the rest of her life, short as it may be, in in this part of central southern Mexico, this rural part of Mexico. Just exploring the beaches, yeah uh, whereas the boys go back to their lives in the city and it does have this metaphorical quality of they together they reach the mouth of heaven yeah and she's able to stay, but they aren't ready to yeah and so and I think like her her story is one of liberation, much like theirs is, but it's a successful one where at last she's found something that she wants and does for herself.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I I wrote down that I almost felt like this was, and I don't think perverted is the right word because of its connotations, but mm-hmm. it's almost like a reversed coming of age story. Yeah, because they the two boys do come of age in a way in that they're kind of brought down from this hyper masculine, hypersexual sexual machismo yeah. boastfulness you know she she really cuts them what's the phrase cuts them down the size because yeah. she calls their bluff when she has sex with him i mean i actually find the f- when Tanakh – basically their their first sex scene together i actually found it a little it was a little hard for me just because he seems so much younger in that scene than in yeah. the other scenes where he's so boastful right and i think he calls her mama when he comes. mama cita mama and um What was I saying? Well, so, yeah, the reason I feel like it's kind of like a reverse coming of age is they have this maturation and that she essentially breaks through all these...
1: Teenage.
0: Teenage, like, guards. And then they're able to, you know, they have shared this really beautiful kiss. And even though they have this beautiful life-affirming experience, and in in so many ways it's a life-affirming film, ultimately when they go back to Mexico city, it feels like they've turned away from life mm-hmm. um, because they've turned, not only have they turned away from each other, but um knock who expresses early in the film, wanting to be a writer reveals that he's decided instead to, to
1: pursue economics.
0: Right. Which is what his father wanted. And they're not friends anymore. They don't talk like it. It has the end of the film, to be honest, is pretty, it's sad. It, yeah. You feel like you, you know there are coming of age films where you feel like someone emerges out of young adulthood teenagerness into something brighter and this one feels like they glimpse something brighter and then they turn away from it yeah um
1: i think that's that's the perfect way to summarize it it's it's coming of age as a tragedy rather than yeah as a as a celebration you know and i think that that's really powerful because it's it, it very much calls out the emotional barriers that we were expected to put up as adults. Yes. And so even though Louisa is able to break down their teenage barriers, inst- they exchange them for another set of barriers. And I think that that's beautifully illustrated in their last scene talking to each other. Uh, I think the narrator comments that like, you know, they run into each other when Julio is on the way to the dentist. And (laughs) since it was easier to get coffee together than avoid it, they did, which is such an adult experience of, uh, I really don't want to talk to you, but we can't admit it to each other. So let's get coffee and muscle through it. And then when they're, they're talking, it's so much more formal. It's so much more apathetic. It's not as passionate. Yeah. As they had been.
0: And they don't have any of the, like, as cringy and kind of, like, goofy and, you know, even ridiculous. misogynistic and yeah. ridiculous their boasting and their sexual boasting was, there was so much life to it. Yeah. And in, what it's replaced with instead is just like, yeah, I'm majoring this, I start in September, and as a viewer, you really you know, feel like you just want to reach through the screen and shake them and yeah. be like, where'd you guys go?
1: What happened? Yeah. And I don't want to paint too bleak a picture because in that final scene, they do, it does seem like they're the more misogynistic and homophobic qualities that they had at the beginning have faded slightly. Like they talk about a mutual friend who, who you know, they, they do dismissively refer to him as a queen, but. Like I think it's Julio who says, "Nah, that fucker's happy as a boyfriend." Like it's 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 much more like positive, uh, especially mm. for like early two thousands in like a Latin American culture. It's very like, yeah, I mean, he's happy. Who cares? Uh, whereas like earlier in the the film, they're like constantly like using homophobic slurs against each other uh, as teenage boys are want to do. Well, as teenage boys brought up in a heterosexist culture are want yeah. to do.
0: Yeah, it's hard, though. I still see... I, I think ultimately I see the end of the film as bleak. Oh, Except absolutely. for Louisa. Except for Louisa, who... Her ending is bleak in a different way in that it turns out the entire time she knew she had terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually dies a month after they return to Mexico City. And, and maybe you already said that. Sorry. Um, I,
1: I don't know that I had... Either way, we can edit it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um... But it's also, like, kind of sad because you're, in a way, when you think about her happiness at the end of the film, there's a way in which as a viewer, you're like, oh, is that just something you get when you're faced with the end of your life and you decide to spend it on the beach versus these two boys who have, I, I don't know, it's 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 a little bleak that I think she's the one that ultimately feels free in the end, but part of that freedom is in facing death.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of in tarot iconography, the card death, uh, you know, this is this is rather rote. I'm sure most people know this. The the death card in a tarot deck does not necessarily represent a literal death, but it can represent a massive life change. And I think that in this film, Louisa facing death is another way of saying that she's facing a major change and in a way that we often do without realizing it, if that makes sense. We often face a sort of ego death or death of self, Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it's replaced with a new self, um, so to speak. But I do think that her literal death at the end of the film is more... It's almost a consummation. It's almost like Mm. in... um, a Hundred Years of Solitude, uh, the the great Colombian novel, where one of the characters is drawn up to heaven directly, like body and soul. She's like mm. the purest person in the book, just ascends directly to heaven.
0: She's raptured?
1: Basically, she has her own <laughs> mini rapture. Wow, uh, And I think that in a way, that's sort of what happens to Louisa, where she just swims out into the sea. And I think the you know narrator comments that the last thing she says is something like life is like the foam. Give your oh, body to the waves or something.
0: I wrote it down. Life is like foam. And that's why you should become one with the sea.
1: Exactly. And it, it feels that way. And I, I don't think it's accidental that the name of the beach they finally find is Heaven's Mouth. The real, you know, Boca de Ciel. It, it, it is sort of she's swallowed up by heaven. Uh, the last we see of her is her walking away from them on the beach, and then going swimming in the water. And it, it feels like this very—it's—it's it's like a positive, sexual, like un, non-puritanical rapture.
0: Yeah, and and I think another thing that makes it so positive and and also kind of magical is that. Heaven's Mouth wasn't supposed to be a real beach. Yeah. This was a beach that they had made up when they were trying to lure, when they were in their most boastful, uh, most you know teenage confidence form at a wedding when they first meet her and they're trying to woo her and get her to go to the beach with them, they make it up. And in a way, I, I find the fact that it turns out to be a real place completely by accident so beautiful because it almost suggests that like these things you make up these places you make up as a teenager where you think you can find happiness, you might be able to get there somehow. Yeah, But you can't plan it. I feel like that's also part of it. Is it's like, because they, they're not trying to get there at all. It's actually only through...
1: Meeting uh, Choi, the like local guy.
0: Yeah, the local fisherman who agrees to take them uh, on a tour of the area for $37 the next day, food included. Um, and he says... And they ask, what's this place called? And he says, Heaven's Mouth. Um, Yeah. It's just a a beautiful moment of synchronicity within the film.
1: Yeah. And I think it's highly symbolic, obviously. Yeah. And especially because, like, talking about how Louisa thinks that these two young men might actually hold some sort of secret to life because of the way they talk and the fact that through them she does find Heaven. Mm. They were false prophets who accidentally saved her soul. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes, I love that idea of false prophets. It's so true. This
1: movie blends traditional Catholic imagery with a very liberated sexual philosophy in such a beautiful and complex way. It's the trappings of Catholicism without the dogma. And instead of that dogma, it's this sense of liberation, mm. and I think you see that in things like how they're constantly on the road to the beach. The three characters are constantly passing funerals and weddings and quinceañeras, like all of the or, or, you know all of these religious ceremonies on the street, just as they're passing by, as they're talking about sex, and so so that iconography is. Present and it's never used to represent any kind of like oppressive church structure. Instead, it's used to represent the rituals of daily life.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. Oh, one other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the sexuality element. In general, the characters are so uninhibited mm-hmm. that I feel like this movie does a really good job of drawing out your own discomfort in really interesting ways and also revealing to you. The particular moment that you are living through, and the contemporary sexual norms that are kind of being talked about—if that makes sense—it
1: does. It, it's it's sort of like it, it's like a spotlight in how it's blindingly bright in how like transparently these characters at least talk about sex. Yes. that it it really draws your attention to your own foibles when it comes to sex and sexuality.
0: Like I was kind of cringing a little bit when. They are talking so I think at the particular at that particular moment they're talking about blowjobs, maybe, when they're stopped on the road and asked to make an offering to the queen. And oh, the
1: the, what is it, the little Madonna.
0: (laughs) The little Madonna, yeah. And it was interesting. In one review I read, they were saying that this scene was a really good example of just, you know, that that this is basically like an extortion that's being dressed up as, like, uh, this is our Madonna, this is our Queen. But I felt really, like, self-conscious for them that they're talking so loudly about blowjobs while there's, like, young kids and families around just gathered around the car. And at the end, when they're drinking so much and they keep calling over to the other table saying, oh, he doesn't know how to eat pussy. This, I was like cringing on their behalf because I was like, we've all seen people this drunk, so drunk that they've lost all sense of inhibition. But I, I just thought that was interesting. And, and I think another way that comes through is just in the age difference of the characters.
1: Right, Louisa, who we should say is played by Maribel Verdú, who most American audiences will probably also recognize from Pan's Labyrinth. She is phenomenal in this movie.
0: She's amazing, She's amazing. But
1: yeah, she's about a decade older than the boys. Uh, And they are very much boys. They are boys.
0: Yeah, it was just interesting because both in their age difference and in the intense amount of drinking, I was just very much reminded of the really intense conversations our culture is having right now around age and power and intoxication and power and sexual encounters. I I just found it really interesting to watch a film where these dynamics were being played out and also feeling like – the conversations of our present moment pop up in my own mind. Yeah. And I don't want to get judgy about it. Like, I don't want to like at all be like, I think X, Y, Z that happened in this film is wrong. I actually think a lot of what I was feeling was like, could this movie be, played today in a way that it would be as well received but i'm I'm just curious what you think i'm not even sure i want this to be in the podcast i just couldn't help No, i think it absolutely has to be okay cool
1: (laughs) yeah don't you dare cut this out (laughs) i think that that's a really salient point to bring up not because the movie exemplifies an unhealthy dynamic but because that really clarifies how well the movie handles the power dynamics between the three characters, yes, like that that machismo, yes. that confidence that the the two boys have actually like really helps balance them against Louisa, yeah. so to speak. Uh, where they have so much like bravado that in their first scene with Louise, I'm almost like, "Whoa, you two need to like back off." They're like leaning yeah, into they're her, so physically, so close, physically to her. close to her. But then in the two scenes where she has sex with them, the first times she very clearly like takes power, like she she steps mm-hmm. up and says, "No, take off your towel. I want to see it."
0: <laughs> and and I think that's the moment where you start to feel the other right. end of those power dynamics because particularly in that scene, because all of the boastfulness is gone from Tanakh.
1: And he's so vulnerable. And he's so
0: vulnerable. You feel suddenly how old he truly is. And you suddenly mm-hmm. remember, oh, right. Like this kid who acts like he knows everything. He's actually only ever had sex with Two his people. girlfriend. <laughs> and yeah, later you find out his best friend's girlfriend. Yeah. And she says, take off your pants. Like, do you? And you feel a little like. I guess I personally tensed up a little bit, but yeah. What's so great about this movie is that, like, everything, all the actions that unfold in this movie are so particular to the characters and so grounded in in each of them individually.
1: Yeah. Earlier, when you were talking about how they have to be intoxicated in order to have this moment of connection, I thought of the the old cliche in Vino Veritas, and I was thinking about how.
0: Wait, what's in Vino Veritas?
1: Oh, it just means um, in wine truth.
0: Uh, so like people yeah. tell
1: tr- tell the truth when they're drunk. And I, I, I realize like the corollary of that is that people don't tell the truth or aren't honest when we're sober. And to me, the tragedy of that isn't that you might get drunk and say something embarrassing. It's that you can't be honest all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think, if anything, the, the intoxication element, you know, which obviously is, is very related to current conversations around sexual consent. I think that in this movie, intoxication is more used as a way of creating a liminal space where rules and boundaries can be violated that exist in the in the normal world.
0: I am obsessed with that thought because I think it dovetails really nicely with what I was trying to think through, which is that I feel like as they take this journey away from Mexico City, they're getting away from like society's rules and norms. But I also think they're getting away from what defines their power dynamics in like the real world, which also kind of provides a liminal space for them to be transgressive. And I actually think at one point she even describes it as a transgression or maybe the narrator describes it as a transgression.
1: Something like that.
0: Yeah. When she feels that when she notices that their friendship is, is off.
1: Suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it says Oh, she thinks it's because of her transgression. Right. But as, because actually, uh, Tanakh and Julio come from really different backgrounds. I think Julio is more, working class, whereas Tannock's dad works for the government Mm -hmm. and also has been caught up in a corruption scandal, but he's much more like upper class, but the further and further away they get from Mexico city, the further they even are from those dynamics and the more kind of removed they are from all the power structures that they're embedded in.
1: Absolutely. I think, um, As an anarchist, I think that that really speaks to one of my core beliefs, which is that you can't abuse your power over someone if you don't have power over someone. So many of the abuses of power that we encounter in our day-to-day lives could be remedied just by abolishing the structures that create that power dynamic in the first place. And I think that that's what these characters encounter the further they get from their unhealthy social contexts.
0: I'm just totally on your wavelength. As our culture has more and more conversations about the abuse of power dynamics, I am waiting for the conversation to shift to, well, maybe power itself is the problem. Absolutely. if if, If that makes sense. But it's not just about using your power responsibly. Because maybe... That is wishful thinking that that can be done. And maybe we need to redistribute wealth. I don't know. Maybe. maybe. we need to redistribute all the wealth and all the land. I think that's and what speaks
1: uh, – that, Abolish that's...
0: private colleges. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I,
1: no. I think the word abolish is, is- – Perfectly relevant, where I think that's what an abolitionist uh, position is all about, not reforming the structures that create these abuses or that incentivize abuse in, and instead tearing them down to be replaced with something better, you know, because yeah. how could it get worse? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I think let, that's a pretty natural transition into what I, something I really want to bring up. Which is the political consciousness of this film? Yeah. You know, the narrator in particular is constantly commenting on various important political turning points right. that are happening in the background, essentially. Mm-hmm. But it does affect the plot of the film, where like uh, you know, Julio's sister is only in a brief, like in one scene, briefly. But it's when she's at a protest march, and they have to go find her and ask to borrow the car, and it's this like massive left wing movement. Uh, One of many that were happening in Mexico at the time as the PRI party was losing power. You know, Julio and his sister share a car and they have to negotiate with her to get it for five days. And I believe the narrator comments that in return, his sister will get it for, for five days to drive down to Chiapas. And for the, you know, our listeners who don't know, Chiapas is the home of the Neo Zapatista movement, which is this autonomous anarchist, indigenous communalist movement that has effectively taken over the state of Chiapas in southern Mexico. And, you know, obviously I haven't been there, so I don't know the reality on the ground, but they from the outside seem fantastic. And they're all about, you know, indigenous land sovereignty. Uh, and community restorative justice as opposed to capitalist exploitation of natural resources And at the time that this movie is set, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Zapatistas were actually transitioning from their military campaign against the Mexican government to the other campaign. It was sort of a public relations tour, but not in a shallow way. It was about going from city to city and presenting the case that the Zapatistas were making for their autonomy and winning over people to support the Zapatistas' work in claiming their own land back.
0: The way this film talks about larger... Societal shifts, and and I think towards the end of this film, they talk about how the uh the party that's ruled Mexico for seventy one years. years has finally been uh, elected out of power. Though the way this film juxtaposes those huge moments, with also the mentioning of really individual tragedies, they pass. But individual tragedies that have actually like political roots, they pass. A man, um, as they start their drive to the beach, who was hit by a car because. He couldn't afford to walk to the walkway, which added another, I think, five miles. Three, three miles. miles. Yeah. yeah.
1: They pass a man who's been struck by a bus because the the closest crossing is three miles away from his workplace.
0: And often as they drive, when the camera is capturing the car uh, driving, the camera will be positioned in such a way that it is also um, in the, what's it called, not film school, not, in the close frame, not the foreground, in the when it's close to the frame what something is like <laughs> like if something is really close to the lens it's not far away it's not in the foreground is there a word for no, that no that's
1: that's being in the foreground The foreground is close to the camera. The background is far from the camera.
0: Oh, my God. Huge. (laughs) See, guys, go to Tish. (laughs) That's why I was so confused when you kept
1: saying, not the foreground. And I'm like, no, that's the word you're looking for.
0: (laughs) Well, so often in the foreground of the shot, as they're passing, will be a cross in memorial to some tragedy, we can assume. And something so beautiful that the camera does in several scenes is drift away from the main characters onto other characters who are in the scene in particular, lower class people. People are in the position of serving the main characters. So this happens early on in the wedding scene. They follow a waitress as she goes into the kitchen and then out through the door where all of the waiters are eating uh, their food, standing up in the back. This happens at one of the restaurants they sit down at where the camera follows uh, a woman into the kitchen and we see a group of Mexican women hanging out and socializing the attention that this film gives, even though it's brief to both larger political events and other individual lives, is really, really touching to me.
1: One of the great strengths of this movie is the care and attention that it gives to the secondary characters and outside events, because it helps foster that sense that we often talk about. Um, that the events are specific to the characters Mm -hmm. that these, these are just the, what these characters are doing rather than what the filmmaker thinks they should do Mm -hmm. because the, this sort of drifting quality of the camera, uh, contextualizes these characters and shows that the, the filmmaker at least is aware of other people and, and. Considers other people, yeah. and I think that when a when a film focuses too narrowly on its protagonist, that's when you start getting these expectations that the filmmaker identifies with the protagonist. Yeah, and I know that the director Alfonso Cuaron, uses this sort of drifting camera technique in a lot of his films. Uh, you know, he's also directed *Children of Men*, uh, *Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban*, <laughs> uh, a.k.a. the best *Harry Potter* movie. Fight me, and and more recently *Roma*. And I know, in particular, that children of men uses this drifting technique to give a larger political context to the actions that the characters are taking, particularly focusing on the dispossessed, the working class, yes. the surplus population. To put it in mm. in pure Marxist terms, and I love it. I love it because mm-hmm. it it shows so much passion for humanity. You know, I haven't seen Roma yet, but after watching this, it it almost seems like a natural fulfillment for Quaron to finally make a movie about an indigenous woman in the working mm-hmm. class because mm-hmm. he, he so clearly wants to know more about that life experience. Uh, the, you know, mestizo groups or indigenous groups uh, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I'd been putting off watching Roma for years, but now after watching this, I'm actually really curious to see it.
0: I read a a quote of his where he said, we we made this movie. We wanted to make the kind of movie we would have made before we went to film school. Mm. Not a movie about breaking rules, but a movie about not knowing that there were rules at all.
1: Yes. Yes. I love that.
0: I totally love that, too. And I think that's part of the drifting camera because it's... It's almost really a break-in of the director's consciousness, and he can't resist following another story, even if just for a few moments. So you could kind of see that maybe a film professor or another director, if they were watching a work-in-progress cut of the film, might say, like, what are we doing here? yeah. But it's really these moments of diversion. They really add to the story overall. It never takes away from what the characters are going through personally. It always just um, brings more to the film and reminds you that everyone is always living their life and going through something or another feeling and emotion that it's it really keeps the film from being too narrow.
1: It, It combats this protagonist mentality that so many so many people our age talk about this idea. When someone is entitled, they're often described as thinking that they're the protagonist of reality or that life's a movie and they're the main character. Yes. And so for a movie to spend so much time. Or show so much interest in people who are not the main characters to me.
0: To remind you that there is no main character, exactly, kind of constantly, yeah, exactly,
1: or that the, the you know the fact that one person is the main character rather than another is just coincidence. Yeah, it's just a matter of what story happens to be being told now.
0: Yeah, I think this is one of my favorite conversations that we've had.
1: Me too. Me too. I feel like this is this is the sort of like this is the sort of conversation that like. I wanted to have when I had this idea for the yeah. podcast.
0: I feel like we've been training for this one.
1: <laughs> uh, hey, maybe we're just getting better at this. <laughs>
0: uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: Yeah, just just what a beautiful movie. That drifting camera effect also really captures the feeling of being in a public space and and just feeling curious about the other people around you, like wanting to explore their lives and and that 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 sense of curiosity that drives so many of us, to people watch? Like last night, I was at a bar for the first time in over a year, and I, I just couldn't take my eyes off the bartender's face as she was working, where I was like, man, she seems stressed out. But like the closer I watched her, the more I realized like, oh, no, she's in her element. She's, like, Mm. crushing it right now. She was, like, shaking the cocktails to the beat of the music that was playing and, like, smacking the the top of the cocktail shaker off. And, like, she just, like, she went from looking harried and stressed to looking so powerful. Mm. Uh, And she had this beautiful red hair. It it, it, it was just fascinating. It's something that I've missed so much in this past year is just seeing random people and wanting to know more about them.
0: Yeah, it's such a beautiful... And life-affirming experience when when you just get to like lose yourself in another person's existence for yeah. I, I had a similar experience this past weekend where I went to dinner by myself which I have not done and I can't remember the last time I did it because I'm really popular actually no it was because of the pandemic <laughs> and I felt really actually self-conscious about going alone because um I actually felt like oh god are they gonna like see me out because they didn't really have tables outside for just loners. And they were like, we can see you inside. And I was a little nervous because I hadn't eaten inside a restaurant in so long. But I had the same experience as you where I got seated at a window that was kind of perched perfectly to look out over the outdoor dining. And I watched this couple where the man was really into, like, cupping the woman's face. And I was just really, like, watching them with such, you know, respectful interest. Of course. Yeah, I just totally agree with you about the way that this movie also indulges the desire to people watch and to know about others in a a really curious, um, humanity-affirming way.
1: Yeah, I think it is very humanist. And it's... It's honestly awe-inspiring sometimes to think about the fact that there are, you know, roughly 7 billion people on this planet and every single one of them is just as complex and has just as much of an internal life as I do, as you do. You know, to think about all of that richness, that abundance of human emotion at all times, everywhere, at once – is incredible. Yeah. I, I get that sometimes when I look at like a cup or a chair and think someone's job was to design this thing. <laughs> or, or like, uh, you know, you just – And I think that's why I'm so fascinated watching people work like waiters in a restaurant or something where I'm like, this is your job. You do this every day and yet I'm only seeing it once.
0: And what's so beautiful about this film is that – feeling of abundance i feel like the end is sad i won't say it's sad i will say there is sadness in the end
1: i will say that i feel like the ending is sad for these two characters
0: yes yes but overall there's such a feeling of abundance in the film in that no betrayal has to be a relationship ending betrayal you know even even louisa when she ends her relationship With Yano, her husband, she still says, I love you. And she says it's not about, you know, the cheating and this betrayal that Tanakh and Julio kind of exchange together. By cheating on, by fucking each other's girlfriends, at first it seems like it's going to be this relationship-ending betrayal, and it's not. And I, and even over drinks, they end up laughing and sharing more details about it. It feels like,
1: and like I think Julio even admits that he slept with Tanuk's mother.
0: Oh my god, yes, which is where we get to the Mama name Tam of the film. <laughs> Yes, yes, and instead of being a. Uh, I mean, it is a bit, maybe not horrifying, but I don't want to use the word shocking. horrifying. Shocking. Cause, yes, I don't want to use a judgment word, but it is a little shocking. But this movie is so much about the abundance that can be found within friendships and with relationships, even when betrayal is there, the abundance that can be found in life when you choose to look at the people around you. And the abundance that can be found in life, even when you're facing death. Not just facing death, but facing death as someone, you know, to remind the the listeners, Louisa was an orphan. She has no family. And she's been betrayed by the only family she created, her husband. So this is someone who, like, when you look at that character on paper, you can imagine that character coming out really differently, full of bitterness. And instead, you get someone who, you know, spends... (laughs) the second to last month of her life um, kind of like teaching these two young men how to live better. Absolutely. The abundance at the heart of this film is really awe-inspiring.
1: It is. I don't think we're going to find a better note to end on. That was No, seriously, that was beautiful. That was beautifully put.
0: Oh, wow. Thanks. Sponsored by Montauk uh, (laughs) Eastern Hayes, India, Pele. But yeah, I mean I hope that we can all live a life where no, no betrayal. Well, I don't want to say no betrayal, but well, I no. hope we can all well, live a <laughs> life. I think the, the other thing I'll say, even though we'll probably no. end on that. I, no. Yeah,
1: I d- don't even b- <laughs> go okay. ahead and say the other thing because I'm your friend and I'm curious, but we're cutting it out because that Perfect. that abundance speech was incredible.
0: <laughs> well, the other thing I was just going to say was that and this is more actually just a friend conversation. The first half of this movie, I was like, Jesus Christ, this movie is all about the kind of unnecessary drama that heterosexual scripts build into relationships where you're kind of having
1: absolutely right where you're just like like even them being like annoyed maybe we should include this but then them being annoyed uh at the farewells at the airport with their girlfriends where it's like why do we have to draw this out
0: well, like, and them and them beg, telling their girlfriends, "You shouldn't cheat on me." This whole song yeah, and dance yeah. about don't cheat on me with a German, don't cheat on me, cheat with, on an me with an Italian,
1: don't cheat on me with a Gringo. Yeah,
0: but of course they've been cheating the whole time. Yeah, uh, and I felt like so. I don't mean that the that this film should be about how no betrayal should be a friendship ending betrayal because obviously there's all flavors of betrayal, and sometimes yes. friendships and relationships should end. But I feel like this film is about how like the scripts that we've been given about certain kinds of betrayals, we can ignore them in favor of, like... Forgiveness. Forgiveness, yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll include that, maybe Maybe not.
1: We'll see who edits this episode. (laughs) But no, um, it's a shame that we can't just end on the abundance thing, because of course...
0: Of course, instead of ending on a beautiful speech about abundance being the key to life.
1: We end on a game of marry, fuck, kill.
0: (laughs) Yes, because we are extremely classy. But you know what? You know what's funny? Earlier today... I was feeling like it doesn't feel right to end on fuck Mary Kill for this. Movie, but now after we've talked, I'm like this actually feels perfect because this is exactly the kind of game that Tanakh and Julio probably would play yeah. for hours.
1: Absolutely, they would this be picking out like their entire like social circle playing <laughs> playing very yeah. with them.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So what what what's the, what do they call each other again? Cholastro, um,
0: Cholastro,
1: Cholastro, 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 uh yeah. God, curse my gringo tongue, it's gonna sound terrible. But no, we we are on a honorary tro- tro- honorary
0: pterolastras. Oh god. Apologies <laughs> for
1: our <art. laughs> I promise when I speak Spanish to the little green owl, it sounds a lot better.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh. Anyway, um, so Mary Fuck, Kill. I think it's only logical to play it with the, main, the three main characters this time. Yeah. You know, because despite this movie's curiosity about the secondary characters, the only three we really know are Luisa, played by Maribel Verdoux, uh, Julio, played by Gail Garcia Bernal, and Tanakh, played by Diego Luna. So, Mary Fuck, Kill.
0: This, I'm going to be honest, it's a little harsh. but That's
1: life in the NFL.
0: It's a little harsh, <laughs> but I'm going to kill Tanakh. You know, I never want to kill anyone no. more, well, except probably for Barbara. I did want to kill yeah. whoever I killed, uh, and Deadly Illusions. Yeah. Um, but Tanakh, to, to me, was always represented, of the spectrum of these characters, he always felt like the more immature one. He's the slightly more, he's actually much more spoiled. Um, Yeah, I
1: was gonna say he's more sheltered than Julio is.
0: Yeah, more sheltered. He's felt a little more spoiled. So he just feels like too young for me to fuck or marry. So tragically, within the confines of this game, I will have to kill him. (laughs) Um, Allie
1: Rogers, noted child killer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, This one's really tough, but I think I'm gonna go with Fuck Louisa. You know, and I say the word fuck not in like a treat her as disposable.
1: (laughs) After watching this movie, I think that we can be a little, we can assume more positivity in the word fuck. This
0: is like a beautiful, life affirming encounter. That's what I mean by the word fuck. I, because mostly like it has always been my dream to be like taught about. Like life lessons through a romantic encounter with an older woman—that sounds Chef's kiss. Like honestly, let's go. same.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you're like, you're like
0: let's go. It's
1: kind of the dream.
0: Yeah, and I think I would marry Julio. And I, and it's weird. I think just because I find this, I find him to be one of the most expressive characters in the film. I was really drawn. Mm. I felt like often you could just see the emotions rippling across his face in this movie. And I am really yeah. drawn to that. So who are you or fuck Mariko?
1: Hmm. That's a, those, those all make a lot of sense. Uh, I think though, I'm going to go a very different route and I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to kill Julio by default, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> okay. nothing personal, but I, I, my first instinct was, uh, to fuck to knock, because, well, th- frankly, for no other reason than I think Diego Luna is sexier than Gail Garcia Bernal. Not to say that they both aren't incredibly sexy. Just Diego Luna's more my type for some reason.
0: OK, that's um, really interesting noting yeah. that.
1: <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like, uh, like they're both very pretty uh, and, and, you know, not to be weird about it, but like Hispanic men are definitely, definitely my type. Uh, but. I don't know, something about Diego Luna. Just, I just, I think he's very sexy. Yeah. Uh, and then I would marry Louisa uh, because you know what's better than having one life-changing encounter with an older woman who teaches you about love and sexuality is to have a bunch of a a life-changing, a <laughs> lifetime of life-changing encounters with a beautiful older woman who teaches you about love and sexuality. <laughs> Plus, like, just Maribel Verdu, like, you know, talking about how sexy Bernal and Luna is, Verdu is sexier than both of them, but together. <laughs> like, like, and that, I'm not saying that to, like, discount the two of them. I'm saying, like, that is just how fucking beautiful she
0: is. No, she's gorgeous. Um, that moment when she turns away from the jukebox and stares directly into the camera and dances forward. Oh. It, one, of, one of the most charismatic. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> like, I fucking melted.
0: Pure confidence, pure charisma. With vulnerability, I mean, it was really stunning. Oh
1: my god! Yeah, that that shot, like, talk about like shining a spotlight on your own sexual hangups. That shot made me feel like I was <laughs> there, and I was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, like you finally understand, like, the way the boys react when she finally approaches, like, like comes onto them, where they're like, what, what, what do you mean?
0: <laughs> totally. Oh my god, that is such a good point. It completely puts you it's in you their in that shoes spot. where yeah. you're like god yeah even if suddenly that you understand fantasy, that that yeah.
1: borderlands between desire and fear it's yeah. fantastic <laughs> um, okay so we'll put yeah. that
0: scene on a 10-hour loop on youtube oh for my that. god please
1: <laughs> thanks for listening to snails and oysters created by nat roberts and Allie rogers music by Billy Libby, and artwork by Abby Austin. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And if you don't like this podcast, I don't know, share it with your enemies?